Section sixteen of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume One, by James Boswell. Section sixteen. The style of Johnson was undoubtedly much formed upon that of the great writers in the last century, Hooker, Bacon, Sanderson. Hockwell, and others, those giants, as they were characterized by a great personage, whose authority, were I to name him, would stamp a reverence on the opinion. We may, with the utmost propriety, apply to his learned style that passage of Horace, a part of which he has taken as the motto to his dictionary. Cum tabulus animum censoris semet honesti, audibit, quaecumcu param splendoris habibunt, et sine ponderer errant, et honore indiga ferentur, verba mover loco, quamvis invida red sedent, et versenter ad hoc intra penetrail vesta, obscurata diu populo bonus erut, atque proferet in lusum, specioso vocabularum, quae precis memorala calanobus aqua sethegis, nunc sidus informus premit, et deserta velestus, ad nova, quae genitor prodirexit usus, vehemens eliquidus, paroximilimus omni, fundan opus latinium et bibit, divile lingua to so great a master of thinking to one of such vast and various knowledge as johnson might have been allowed a liberal indulgence of that license which horace claims in another place si forte necess est indicus monstrere recentibus abdita rerum fingere singtudus non exaudita sethegis contigit Daturbic licentia tumta pedeter, et nova fitat, nuper habibunt verba fidem si, greco falancadunt, parse de torta, quid autem, Cecilio platuc dabit Romanus, ademptum, virgiglio, verioque, ego cur, aquaria pausa, si possum, invidior, cum lingua catonis e ini. Sermonium patrium didaverit, and nova rerum, nomina protulerit, lisuit semperque lisibit, signatum presente nota producere nomen. Yet Johnson assured me that he had not taken upon him to add more than four or five words to the English language, of his own formation, and he was very much offended at the general license, by no means modestly taken in his time, not only to coin new words, but to use many words and senses quite different from their established meaning, and those frequently very fantastical. Sir Thomas Brown, whose life Johnson wrote, was remarkably fond of Anglo-Latin diction, and to his example we are to ascribe Johnson's sometimes indulging himself in this kind of phraseology. Johnson's comprehension of mind was the mould for his language. Had his conceptions been narrower, his expression would have been easier. His sentences have a dignified march, and it is certain that his example has given a general elevation to the language of his country, 
for many of our best writers have approached very near to him, and, from the influence which he has had upon our composition, scarcely anything is written now that is not better expressed than was usual before he appeared to lead the national taste. This circumstance, the truth of which must strike every critical reader, has been so happily enforced by Mr. Courtenay, in his moral and literary character of Dr. Johnson, that I cannot prevail on myself to withhold it, notwithstanding his, perhaps, too great partiality for one of his friends. By nature's gifts ordained mankind to rule, he, like a Titian, formed his brilliant school, and taught congenial spirits to excel, while from his lips impressive wisdom fell. Our boasted goldsmith felt the sovereign sway, from him derived the sweet yet nervous lay. To fame's proud cliff he bade our Raphael rise, hence Reynolds' pen with Reynolds' pencil vies. With Johnson's flame melodious Burney glows, while the grand strain in smoother cadence flows. And you, Malone, to critique learning, dear, correct and elegant, refined through clear, by studying him acquired that classic taste, which high in Shakespeare's fane thy statue placed. Near Johnson Stevens stands, on scenic ground, acute, laborious, fertile, and profound. Ingenious Hawksworth to this school we owe, and scarce the pupil from the tutor know. Here early parts accomplished Jones sublimes, and science blends with Asia's lofty rhymes. Harmonious Jones, who in his splendid strains sings Camdeo's sports on Agra's flowery plains. In Hindu fictions, while we fondly trace love and the muses decked with Attic grace, amid these names can Boswell be forgot, scarce by North Britons now esteemed a Scot, who to the sage devoted from his youth imbibed from him the sacred love of truth, the keen research, the exercise of mind, and that best art, the art to know mankind. Nor was his energy confined alone to friends around his philosophic throne, its influence wide improved our lettered isle, and lucid vigor marked the general style, as Nile's proud waves swoln from their oozy bed. First o'er the neighboring meads majestic spread, till gathering force they more and more expand, and with new virtue fertilize the land. Johnson's language, however, must be allowed to be too masculine for the delicate gentleness of female writing. His ladies, therefore, seem strangely formal, even to ridicule, and are well denominated by the names which he has given them as Micella, Zosima, Properantia, Rodiclia. It has of late been the fashion to compare the style of Addison and Johnson, and to depreciate, I think very unjustly, the style of Addison as nerveless and feeble, because it has not the strength and energy of that of Johnson. Their prose may be balanced like the poetry of Dryden and Pope. Both are excellent, though in different ways. Addison writes with the ease of a gentleman. His readers fancy that a wise and accomplished companion is talking to them, so that he insinuates his sentiments and tastes into their minds by an imperceptible influence. Johnson writes like a teacher. He dictates to his readers as if from an academical chair. They attend with awe and admiration, and his precepts are impressed upon them by his commanding eloquence. Addison's style, like a light wine, pleases everybody from the first. 
Johnson's, like a liquor of more body, seems too strong at first, but by degrees is highly relished. And such is the melody of his periods, so much do they captivate the ear and seize upon the attention, that there is scarcely any writer, however inconsiderable, who does not aim in some degree at the same species of excellence. But let us not ungratefully undervalue that beautiful style which has pleasingly conveyed to us much instruction and entertainment. Though comparatively weak, opposed to Johnson's Herculean vigor, let us not call it positively feeble. Let us remember the character of his style as given by Johnson himself. What he attempted he performed. He is never feeble, and he did not wish to be energetic. He is never rapid, and he never stagnates. His sentences have neither studied amplitude nor affected brevity. His periods, though not diligently rounded, are voluble and easy. Whoever wishes to attain an English style, familiar but not coarse, and elegant but not ostentatious, must give his days and nights to the volumes of Addison. Though the Rambler was not concluded till the year 1752, I shall under this year say all that I have to observe upon it. Some of the translations of the mottoes by himself are admirably done. He acknowledges to have received elegant translations of many of them from Mr. James Elphinstone, and some are very happily translated by a Mr. F. Lewis, of whom I never heard more, except that Johnson thus described him to Mr. Malone. Sir, he lived in London, and hung loose upon society. The concluding paper of his rambler is at once dignified and pathetic. I cannot, however, but wish that he had not ended it with an unnecessary Greek verse, translated also into an English couplet. It is too much like the conceit of those dramatic poets, who used to conclude each act with a rhyme, and the expression in the first line of his couplet, Celestial Powers, though proper in pagan poetry, is ill-suited to Christianity, with a conformity to which he consoles himself. How much better would it have been to have ended with the prose sentence, I shall never envy the honors which wit and learning obtain in any other cause, if I can be numbered among the writers who have given ardor to virtue and confidence to truth. His friend, Dr. Birch, being now engaged in preparing an edition of Raleigh's smaller pieces, Dr. Johnson wrote the following letter to that gentleman. To Dr. Birch, Gow Square, May 12, 1750. Sir, knowing that you are now preparing to favor the public with a new edition of Raleigh's miscellaneous pieces, I have taken the liberty to send you a manuscript, which fell by chance within my notice. I perceive no proofs of forgery in my examination of it, and the owner tells me that, as he has heard, the handwriting is Sir Walter's. If you should find reason to conclude it genuine, it will be a kindness to the owner, a blind person, to recommend it to the booksellers. I am, sir, your most humble servant, Sam Johnson. His just abhorrence of Milton's political notions was ever strong, but this did not prevent his warm admiration of Milton's great poetical merit, to which he has done illustrious justice beyond all who have written upon the subject. And this year he not only wrote a prologue, which was spoken by Mr. Garrick before the acting of Comus at Drury Lane Theatre, for the benefit of Milton's granddaughter, but took a very zealous interest in the success of the charity. 
On the day preceding the performance, he published the following paper in the general advertiser, addressed to the printer of that paper. Sir, that a certain degree of reputation is acquired merely by approving the works of genius, and testifying a regard to the memory of authors, is a truth too evident to be denied, and therefore to ensure a participation of fame with a celebrated poet, many who would, perhaps, have contributed to starve him when alive, have heaped expensive pageants upon his grave. It must indeed be confessed that this method of becoming known to posterity with honor is peculiar to the great, or at least to the wealthy, but an opportunity now offers for almost every individual to secure the praise of paying a just regard to the illustrious dead, united with the pleasure of doing good to the living, to assist industrious indigence, struggling with distress and debilitated by age, is a display of virtue, and an acquisition of happiness and honor. Whoever, then, would be thought capable of pleasure in reading the works of our incomparable Milton, and not so destitute of gratitude as to refuse to lay out a trifle in rational and elegant entertainment for the benefit of his living remains, for the exercise of their own virtue, the increase of their reputation, and the pleasing consciousness of doing good, should appear at Drury Lane Theatre to-morrow, April 5, when Comus will be performed for the benefit of Mrs. Elizabeth Foster, the granddaughter to the author, and the only surviving branch of his family. N.B. There will be a new prologue on the occasion, written by the author of Irene, and spoken by Mr. Garrick, and, by particular desire, there will be added to the mask a dramatic satire, called Leth, in which Mr. Garrick will perform. 1751. Etat 42. In 1751 we are to consider him as carrying on both his dictionary and rambler. But he also wrote The Life of Chanel, in the miscellany called The Student, and the Reverend Dr. Douglas having, with uncommon acuteness, clearly detected a gross forgery and imposition upon the public by William Lauder, a Scotch schoolmaster, who had, with equal impudence and ingenuity, represented Milton as a plagiary from certain modern Latin poets. Johnson, who had been so far imposed upon as to furnish a preface and postscript to his work, now dictated a letter for Lauder, addressed to Dr. Douglas, acknowledging his fraud in terms of suitable contrition. This extraordinary attempt of Lauder was no sudden effort. He had brooded over it for many years, and to this hour it is uncertain what his principal motive was, unless it were a vain notion of his superiority, in being able, by whatever means, to deceive mankind. To effect this, he produced certain passages from Grotius, Mecenius, and others, which had a faint resemblance to some parts of the Paradise Lost. In these he interpolated some fragments of Hogg's Latin translation of that poem, alleging that mass thus fabricated was the archetype from which Milton copied. These fabrications he published from time to time in the Gentleman's Magazine, and exulting in his fancied success, he in 1750 ventured to collect them into a pamphlet, entitled, An Essay on Milton's Use and Imitation of the Moderns in His Paradise Lost. To this pamphlet Johnson wrote a preface, in full persuasion of Lauder's honesty, and a postscript recommending, in the most persuasive terms, a subscription for the relief of a granddaughter of Milton, of whom he thus speaks. 
it is yet in the power of a great people to reward the poet whose name they boast, and from their alliance to whose genius they claim some kind of superiority to every other nation of the earth. That poet, whose works may possibly be read when every other monument of British greatness shall be obliterated, to reward him, not with pictures or with medals, which if he sees, he sees with contempt, but with tokens of gratitude, which he perhaps may even now consider as not unworthy the regard of an immortal spirit. Surely this is inconsistent with enmity towards Milton, which Sir John Hawkins imputes to Johnson upon this occasion, adding, I could all along observe that Johnson seemed to approve not only of the design, but of the argument, and seemed to exult in a persuasion that the reputation of Milton was likely to suffer by this discovery. That he was not privy to the imposture, I am well persuaded, but that he wished well to the argument may be inferred from the preface, which indubitably was written by Johnson. Is it possible for any man of clear judgment to suppose that Johnson, who so nobly praised the poetical excellence of Milton in a postscript to this very discovery, as he then supposed it, could at the same time exult in a persuasion that the great poet's reputation was likely to suffer by it? This is an inconsistency of which Johnson was incapable, nor can anything be more fairly inferred from the preface than that Johnson, who was alike distinguished for ardent curiosity and love of truth, was pleased with an investigation by which both were gratified. That he was actuated by these motives, and certainly by no unworthy desire to deprecate our great epic poet, is evident from his own words. For, after mentioning the general zeal of men of genius and literature to advance the honor and distinguish the beauties of Paradise Lost, he says, among the inquiries to which this ardor of criticism has naturally given occasion, none is more obscure in itself, or more worthy of rational curiosity, than a retrospect of the progress of this mighty genius in the construction of his work, a view of the fabric gradually rising, perhaps, from small beginnings, till its foundation rests in the centre, and its turrets sparkle in the skies, to trace back the structure through all its varieties, to the simplicity of its first plan, to find what was first projected, whence the scheme was taken, how it was improved, by what assistance it was executed, and from what stores the materials were collected, whether its founder dug them from the quarries of nature, or demolished other buildings to embellish his own. Is this the language of one who wished to blast the laurels of Milton? Though Johnson's circumstances were at this time far from being easy, his humane and charitable disposition was constantly exerting itself. Mrs. Anna Williams, daughter of a very ingenious Welsh physician, and a woman of more than ordinary talents and literature, having come to London in hopes of being cured of a cataract in both her eyes, which afterwards ended in total blindness, was kindly received as a constant visitor at his house, while Mrs. Johnson lived, and after her death, having come under his roof in order to have an operation upon her eyes performed with more comfort to her than in lodgings, she had an apartment from him during the rest of her life, at all times when he had a house. End of section 16